And yeah. Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron. Politics and policy often seem like two sides of the same coin. To be a successful politician, you have to be good at both campaigning and legislating, at winning votes and passing laws. And yet the two can often be quite far apart. Take healthcare, for example. It's one of the most controversial issues in American politics, and not just this election. Ever since Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, healthcare has been a top issue. But has it been the politics or the policy around healthcare that's influencing our elections? As a part of our State of the State season, we're taking a look at some of the most important elections in the 2018 midterms. And this episode, we're going to Tennessee, the volunteer state, to see how health care is impacting one of the most competitive Senate races in the country. Play ball! So what, what's your favorite Tennessee fun fact? Hmm... Let's see. Well, I actually just learned this um, the other day, and uh, it actually caught me completely by surprise. But um, I didn't realize that the Smoky Mountains were actually the most visited national park in the U.S. That's Jason Burchard. So, hi, my name is Jason Burchard. I am the CEO and co-founder of RootNote, a company that invests into music creators. And what's your connection to LSE? So I attended the LSE from 2014 through 2016. Um, I was in the two-year Master's of Science in Management program. Also, quick side note here, Jason and his brother won LSE Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017. And when you you left LSE, is that when you moved to Tennessee and started your business? Yeah. Yep. I moved um, directly from London to Nashville. Uh, in September of 2016 to launch my company. So Jason, how would you describe Tennessee to someone who's never even heard of it? Yeah, Tennessee is interesting. It's relatively uh, narrow vertically and and wide horizontally, um, which if you've traveled through the U.S., uh, you'll understand that that means it only takes about three hours to get from the the southernmost point to... um, the northernmost, but it can take you uh, about eight to get across the entire state. When you're going from east to west? When you're going from east to west, yeah. But the westernmost part of the state is bordered by the uh, Mississippi River, which um, has you know, long been known as one of the most important waterways in the U.S. Um, it was written about by Mark Twain and functioned as a major um, kind of point of commerce kind of during during the early days and, and still does and, and that's where Memphis is. This part of the state is is very flat and as you kind of move east uh, from west you get into to middle Tennessee. So middle Tennessee you start getting into the the foothills and you get into um, a bit of kind of rolling hills. This is where Nashville, my hometown is. 
as you continue to make your way east, you actually get into one of the most visited national parks. Um, I believe it is actually the most visited national park in the United States, the uh, Great Smoky Mountains. Now, this is home to cities like uh, Chattanooga and Knoxville, the famous kind of Appalachian Trail, which covers about 800 miles um, all the way from the southern U.S. up to the northeast. Um, and this, this part of the country is just absolutely beautiful. So which Tennesseans, and is that is that the right term, Tennesseans? Uh, yes. Okay. So which Tennesseans would you say are, are kind of good examples of the people who call Tennessee home? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And we have such a diverse kind of subsect of, of economies here that attract such a variety of people you know, everyone from, uh, which she's in and out, obviously, but people like Taylor Swift, um, just massive superstars who have places in, in Nashville and, and Franklin, um, to CEOs. Uh, FedEx, the global headquarters, is, is based in, uh, in Memphis. And it's really interesting. It's kind of one of those places where uh, it's such a beautiful state. I, I don't think it's hard to bring people back here. And as the economy continues to grow in the various markets, um, it's, it's becoming a lot easier uh, to, to commute <laughs> even to and from Tennessee. We, uh, we just opened up a direct flight once again from uh, London to Nashville. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I think it's really speaking to just kind of the state of where um, the state is going uh, as far as its own expectations for economic growth. Tennessee is a Republican state in that Trump carried it with 60% of the vote in 2016. And that is Dr. Amanda Winterseek. I'm Amanda Winterseek. I'm Dr. Amanda Winterseek. I am a UC Foundation Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Service at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. And um, I actually study how citizens are influenced by facts and factual information during campaigns. I spoke with Amanda about the general political landscape of Tennessee. And just to make sure you understand the sheer size of his victory. We have 95 counties, of which Donald Trump won 92. Wow. Yeah, it's quite a lot. So this seat is currently held by uh, Bob Corker. He's a retiring senator. He's a Republican senator, and he served two terms um, as senator in this seat. But he's a moderate Republican, and the seat he holds has a history of going between Democrats and Republicans. And this really speaks to the unique stubborn streak of moderate voting in the state of Tennessee. And we see that reflected not just in this Senate seat, but in the governorship, which has switched parties every four to eight years since 1971. So you mentioned Bob Corker, um, who's the current sitting senator. Why is he retiring? That's a great question. So um, if you've been following U.S. politics and Donald Trump on Twitter, which I think a lot of people are, um, 
You will have noted that for the last 18 months, Bob Corker has been having a fairly public dispute with President Trump. That has at times reached into the absurd. And so um, we see last year Trump calling Corker incompetent. Um, Corker responds back and calls Donald Trump a bully. Uh, this then slid into a claim by Donald Trump that Corker was begging him for an endorsement, to which Corker responds that the White House is an adult daycare center. So it seems that this fairly public dispute, coupled with frustration about legislative gridlock in the Senate and the threat of a primary challenger, um, all played a role in the senator's decision to retire this year. And so let's talk about the candidates. Who are the candidates running to take Bob Corker's place in the U.S. Senate? So Marsha Blackburn is the Republican candidate. She came out and stated that she was going to run for this position when Bob Corker initially said he was going to retire. Bob Corker then was a bit wishy-washy and said he was reconsidering this retirement, but it was made clear by the Trump ban and establishment in DC at the time that they would throw their full weight behind Marsha Blackburn. So Bob Corker definitively stepped out of the race and uh, Marsha Blackburn had pretty much no competition for the primary election. So she is just currently a member of the Congress, uh, the House, and she represents Tennessee's 7th District, which is a highly Republican district in the western part of the state. Um, and when I say she's a highly conservative member, uh, her DW nominate score, which is a way to rank the ideology of the members of Congress, places her as 80% more conservative than the rest of the members of the House. Um, so Yes, yeah, so she's quite conservative, uh, and she does have the endorsement of Donald Trump. So she was first elected to the House in 2002, and prior to that, she served as a member of the state Senate. So she has a long history in, of politics here in Tennessee, and uh, she is running quite a Trump-esque campaign and has actively sought the and received the endorsement of Donald Trump. Um, I should note that part of her strategy then has been to be intentionally vague on her positions on key issues in 2018. So on the, two, on the Democratic side, we have Phil Bredesen. Bredesen is a former two-term governor for the state of Tennessee. He served from 2003 to 2011, and he is a well-liked moderate Democrat, which is quite important. Um, in fact, in his 2006 re-election campaign, he won all 95 counties. So he's quite a popular figure here. Um, prior to serving as governor, he was the mayor of Nashville. And prior to that, he actually worked in the pub or the private sector at in healthcare. Um, so Bredesen is trying to move moderate Republicans into his camp during this election. And it's interesting to note that retiring Senator Corker uh, has stated that he will not campaign against Bredesen, who he considers to be a longtime friend and colleague. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, this might be a bit of a oversimplification or even overstating of the dynamic here. But is it right to say that the departing Senator Bob Corker doesn't like Marsha Blackburn, the candidate from his own party, but he does like and respect Bredesen, the Democratic candidate. Well, I don't think that is that he doesn't like Blackburn. He has actually publicly donated money to Blackburn's campaign and has endorsed her as the Republican candidate, but he is declining to weigh in in terms of actually getting out on the campaign trail and campaigning actively for Blackburn. So what are the polls saying about this race? Who's who's currently in the lead? It is a toss-up. We are talking dead heat. Uh, there is no statistically significant difference in support for either candidate right now. And um, this is really fascinating. And I think it speaks to the moderate streak that we have seen in Tennessean politics, that 
we do as a population tend to correct. And so we went heavily for Trump in 2016. And I think that it's quite likely that Bredesen wins this election. Um, he he is slightly ahead, but it's not outside the margin of error. All right. Okay. So to move over to the, the issue side of the election, what are the key issues in this race? What are the candidates actually talking about when they're out on the campaign trail? Um, the issues are pretty interesting. Uh, the economy is sort of all-encompassing. And many of the other issues that are being discussed, including healthcare and education, are being discussed as almost subsets of economic um, conditions. So the economy, healthcare, uh, are major issues we're seeing discussed across all elections in Tennessee. But Marsha Blackburn um, is actually quite different on this. She has been focusing on issues of abortion and Second Amendment rights. Um, and because she lacked a primary challenger, it's not terribly clear what her actual policy positions are on, on many of the key issues in the race. So you mentioned that healthcare is popping up as more of an economic issue rather than something about access to healthcare or the finer details of the policy. So how is this issue being used by the candidates? I mean, especially when it comes to Bredesen, since he's a former healthcare professional himself. There are two facts that are being widely pointed to uh, about the state of healthcare in Tennessee. The first is, is that Tennessee has one of the highest uh, state rankings for filings of bankruptcy. And this is, to some extent, the result of um, financial devastation as a result of health issues. So we are seeing candidates frame this as an economic issue in terms of citizens having to file for bankruptcy because of healthcare problems. Um, the second thing we are seeing pointed to is the rising opioid addiction crisis in the state of Tennessee. I mean, it's, it's a more general problem in the South and Western or Midwest uh, United States generally, but um, we are seeing an alarming number of families being affected by the opioid addiction crisis. And so there's a question then about criminal justice reform related to that, um, as well as moving healthcare policy in a way to provide rehabilitative services to these uh, families. So looking at the Democratic candidate specifically, Bredesen, how is he using health care in his campaign? What we are seeing is Phil Bredesen is bringing up the issue of health care in order to establish retrospective evaluations for voters. So this is basically the idea of reminding voters what he has done for them in the past as a way of helping them to predict what he will do for them in the future. So he has been um, quite vocal at the national level that uh, he's been a vocal critic of the ACA. He argues that it did nothing to fix the broken system except add 30 million new users to an already overwhelmed system. Um, but he does, in principle, believe that healthcare should be universal and that every American deserves a basic level of health care. And so he has been highly supportive of Lamar Alexander, who is the other, who is the senior senator from uh, Tennessee. Uh, he's been very supportive of his efforts to promote a bipartisan health care reform measure that actually failed earlier this year. And he has also pointed to a couple, he, he talks a lot about the things he did as governor. So specifically, he talks about his work to reform Tennessee Care, which is a Medicaid expansion program. 
and um, a program called Cover Tennessee, which just provided health insurance and pharmacy assistance to the uninsured. And so really at this point from him, we're seeing these retrospective evaluations come into play. Uh, on Marsha Blackburn's side, we're not seeing a whole lot of discussion about health care. Um, she believes that the ACA should be repealed, and she re believes in market-based reforms. However, her campaign website is a bit bleak in terms of her actual policy positions um, on key issues. It's actually just a bullet-pointed list. And so we have to infer her opinion on these key issues based on her political statements and advertisements. So her campaign has been fairly heavy on rhetoric. And and light on policy detail. The thing is, when I was speaking with Amanda about this election, it just seemed like actual health care policy, things like the repercussions of the Affordable Care Act or even the differences between Medicare and Medicaid, these things were miles and miles away from how health care is being used in this election. And honestly, part of the reason for that is healthcare policy is really, really complicated. My colleague here at the U.S. Center, Sarah Scafidi, has experience in this complicated world of healthcare policy. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Denise. Yeah, that's right. And actually, to dive into this issue a little more, I spoke with the healthcare policy expert who I used to work with. So the first thing you need to know about Medicaid is it's not Medicare. That's Andy Schneider. Hi, this is Andy Schneider. I'm a research professor of the practice at the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown University. So I know Andy from when we worked together at the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families in Washington, D.C. It's great, Sarah. We miss you. He was sort of a walking encyclopedia on Medicaid. Yes, well, when I came here to um, the uh, Center for Children and Families, uh, March a year ago, Sarah was here. Uh, you know, I introduced myself as the as the new Medicare beneficiary in the office. Yeah, <laughs> that's how we met. So let's start with the basics. So in the U.S., health insurance is sold or provided by private companies, just like car insurance or homeowners insurance. Only one big difference is that most people get their health insurance through their job. So obviously, people who don't have jobs, like unemployed people, disabled people, or children, can't get their health insurance through a job they don't have. So back in 1965, the federal government created a couple of programs to cover those people. Let's start with Medicare. And what is Medicare? So Medicare is a social insurance program um, for the elderly and um, some people with disabilities. Um, and you qualify by um, working for a certain period of time and paying social insurance taxes. And, and Medicare is a federal program, federally run. So in practical terms, who are the people who are actually using Medicare for their health care, to cover their health care? So mostly people aged 65 or older, and then some people with a certain disability status. The other is Medicaid. That's run by the federal government and the states, primarily administered by the states on a day-to-day -day basis, but financed jointly. Um, both of these public insurance programs uh, were enacted in 1965. Um, 
but the, the the Medicaid program is unlike Medicare, a means-tested program. That is to say, uh, you have to um, meet certain income and in some cases assets requirements in order to qualify. And who does this cover? Medicaid happens to be the the largest uh, of the public insurance programs. It covers about 20% of the U.S. population, over 70 million people, um, um, including children, uh, parents with dependent children, um, people with disabilities, and seniors. Again, they're all low income. But the real story about Medicaid is what it provides for kids. It's pretty important for for kids in this country. It covers um, over 40% of the nation's children. Okay, so before we go any further, do you, Sarah, do you have any basic trick for remembering the differences between the two? Because I can't imagine I'm the only one who always ends up getting Medicare and Medicaid mixed up. Oh, yeah, you're definitely not the only one. I like to think of Medicare as caring for the elderly and Medicaid as aiding low-income people. One of the biggest differences is that Medicaid is overseen by both the federal government and the individual state governments. Again, it's a, it's a program that's administered by the states uh, within broad federal guidelines. Federal government um, on average, pays about 60% of the cost of the program. Because of the number of people it covers and because of the range of services it covers, uh, running from hospital and physician care all the way to nursing home and uh, home care, it uh, accounts for a good deal of public spending uh, this year. Uh, total federal government and state spending, it'll be about close to $600 billion. This overlap between the federal and state governments is the important bit here. That brings us to uh, the changes that came about in 2010 in Medicaid as part of the uh, Affordable Care Act. The basic point of the Affordable Care Act was to try to expand health insurance coverage in this country. The one detail that um, people do need to understand is that um, before the ACA, despite all the discretion that states have in the Medicaid program, the, um, the, basic, the basic prohibition in the program was that if you had a, an adult, regardless of income, who did not have a dependent child, uh, was not pregnant, was not disabled, and was not elderly, that person simply could not qualify for Medicaid. And so those people, basically most low-income people who didn't have kids, didn't really have access to any health care option that they could afford. That's why we were seeing huge uninsured numbers in the low-income brackets. So when people talk about Medicaid expansion under the ACA, they're talking about how Medicaid was expanding to cover these new people. So this expansion of Medicaid to those low-income people, that just automatically happened? Well, no, not exactly. The plan was that uh, there would be this seamless quilt of healthcare coverage with Medicaid for um, the lowest income population. And to make a long story short, we're not there because the Supreme Court intervened. 
and said states can't be forced to to accept uh, this uh, requirement from the federal government. And so that expansion population became optional. A number of states, um, we're at about 18 states right now, including Tennessee, that do not cover that population. Okay, so this brings us back to Tennessee. All right, so they've decided not to expand Medicaid to that low-income group of people, right? Yes, that's right. So Tennessee is one of the states that has not taken up the Medicaid expansion. As a result, Tennessee's uh, uninsured rate is uh, higher than the average uninsured rate in the country or the for the total population. So about 11% of the entire population of the state of Tennessee has no insurance coverage. And that compares with, uh, for the nation as a whole, about 9%. Uh, the reason that the U.S. has only 9% uninsured, I say only, that's a lot of people, but the reason it has only 9% is, is uh, because of the changes um, in coverage that came about as a result of the ACA, including about 30 33, 34 states um, taking up the Medicaid expansion. TenCare is the name of the Tennessee Medicaid program. And what is TenCare? So that is how that is how Tennessee is covering about 20% of its population, including over 40% of its kids. A lot of low-income people with disabilities. A lot of low-income elderly. So what's the difference between TenCare and the Medicaid expansion? TenCare is Tennessee's Medicaid program, but since Tennessee chose not to expand Medicaid, thousands of people are losing out on coverage. And uh, who they're not covering um, are uh, single adults who are not pregnant, have no dependent children, and uh, are not elderly and not disabled. That would be the, the core of the expansion population in Tennessee, and um, the state has so far opted uh, not to cover them. So why wouldn't a state want to expand Medicaid to cover this part of the population? That's one of the big questions in this debate. So that's a good question. Um, if you were looking at this from the standpoint of a healthcare. Uh, provider or a, a public health official, you would think there's uh, a strong interest on the part of the state in making sure that as many people um, in the state have health insurance coverage of some kind. Um, we know that um, health insurance coverage improves access to needed medical care, and we know that um, if providers treat people with health insurance coverage, they do not incur uh, uncompensated care costs. Um, someone shows up at a hospital or a physician's office or a clinic, um, uh, they're likely to get treated, uh, but whether they can pay or not is largely a function of do they have coverage that will that will pay. And if they don't, the provider is left. Um, holding the bag um, 
and either having to try to collect from the patient or um, cross-subsidizing the cost of treating that patient by raising charges to other patients. So those are some of the structural reasons why a state might think it was a good thing to reduce the number of uninsured. On the other side, um, there uh, may be some cost to the state government of um, paying for additional insurance coverage for uninsured people. In the case of the Medicaid expansion population, for the first couple of years, 2014, 2015, 2016, there would have been no cost whatsoever to the state. Now um, that 100% federal matching uh, share is slowly uh, gliding down to 90%. And uh, so there is you know, going to be up to 10% uh, of the cost um, allocated to the state government budget, not to the federal government's budget. Um, so, so that would be something that the state would have to take into account. Um, on the other hand, spending 10 cents of, of a state dollar on the state side to bring in 90 cents in federal money and cover your population um, to some people looks like a very attractive uh, opportunity. Is this just a political thing? Like, is this just one of those moments when a when one party doesn't want to expand the other party's policy? Well, partisan politics could be one reason, right? You know, for a state to take up the take up the Medicaid expansion, depending on the state, either the governor would make that decision by him or herself, or the state legislature would have to make that decision, or both. Different states have different ways of running their Medicaid programs. At some point, somebody in elected office would have to decide to take up the expansion. And some of those considerations that I talked about earlier, you know, would be vetted and argued, both in the legislature and in the um, in the governor's office and in the budget office. And then the political decision makers would decide. There, there is, of course, a bias in favor of, of, of not accepting the expansion simply due to inertia. You actually have to make a positive decision. And so right there, uh, the way um, a lot of state legislative decision-making procedures are arranged, it's, um, it's an additional hurdle to to actually make an, a, an affirmative decision to opt in as opposed to um, having it happen automatically. So obviously this has become a really politicized issue. It just sort of seems like even though healthcare is such a politicized issue and such a contentious issue, this is a case where policy does not equal the politics of this issue. I mean, it's they seem fairly distant from each other. It's quite interesting, though, that we are seeing more of a conversation of healthcare at the local level. And that's Dr. Amanda Winterseek. So, for example, 
in District 3 for the, the House District 3 race um, against incumbent Chuck Fletchman, we have a medical doctor running as a Democrat. Um, her name is Danielle Mitchell, and she is 100% running a campaign on health care. And um, it's interesting to hear her talk about health care and the need for health care reform in Tennessee from the uh, perspective of a family medical practitioner who is seeing families deal with medical crises every day and being unable to afford the repercussions of healthcare problems. So at a local level, we are seeing a lot more conversation about healthcare, and we are seeing um, some more specifics about what each of the candidates say they would like to see. You said that that's the third district yeah. in Tennessee, third congressional district? Yeah, Dr. Danielle Mitchell. Interesting. So that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thank you to Amanda Winterseek, Andy Schneider, and Jason Bruchard. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-host Chris Gilson and making her ballpark debut, Sarah Scafferty, and also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. Bless their heart, they're just the best. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. In our next episode, From the Ballpark. Texas is called the Lone Star State. We're going to Texas. Texas! Texas, yo! Thanks for listening! So my colleague, Sarah, I'm going to mess up your last name every time. You didn't the last two times. I know, but I just got really nervous. Okay, think of it like Sarah Scafeed me, I'm hungry. Scafeedy. Scafeedy. Yeah. Scafeedy. Scafeedy. Okay, I might even write it phonetically. There you go. Scafeedy. 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 All right, got it. Okay.